listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody. As usual, in the midst of this COVID-19 weirdness, I'm late with the podcast. I'm always late with the podcast these days. It, because this is, once again, a late dropping podcast, I'm going to once again try to keep the introduction really brief. I'm going to thank one new person on the team, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to pronounce his name right. It is Chris Deloage, which I think is an incredibly cool name. Um, Chris is from Florida, and he sent me a very cool note when he was joining up as a Patreon supporter, basically saying, I'm doing this for the shout out. And so, Chris, I hope you're listening because this is it. All right. This is also a very cool podcast. I sometimes bring you guests that nobody's ever heard of. But today, we're going to talk to Mark Oppenheimer, um, somebody who a lot of people have heard of, especially recently, because Mark was one of the signers of the famous slash infamous Harper's Letter about free speech, which created a kind of a literary controversy. And lots of famous people were part of it, and J.K. Rowling and Malcolm Gladwell and, and Steven Pinker and lots of people. And Mark was one of the signers, which is impressive. But more importantly, Mark is a truly original thinker, writer, and feeler and lover. Um, and I mean that, like, this is a human being. This is a father and a husband and a guy who loves his dogs and who bakes challah bread and who runs the really cool unorthodox podcast, and which is kind of the, the Jewiest thing in the world and a beautifully Jewy podcast. He's written books. He's actually working on a book right now about the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of Pittsburgh in the aftermath of the synagogue shooting there in 2018. Um, but he's written lots of books and lots of articles for lots of really impressive magazines. And he's taught at really impressive schools like NYU and Stanford. And right now he teaches at Yale and he lives in New Haven with his, when I say he's a father, he's like, he's a real father, serious father. He's like a father of five children. Um, some of whom I've met and found delightful. So I'm not going to like, you'll figure out what a, what an interesting person Mark is as I talk to him. I'm no expert on this free speech stuff. I'm no expert on literature. I'm not an expert on publishing. Like in at least this time, I w I'm wading into the waters of something I'm really interested in, but at least this time I waded in with somebody who really knows. And hopefully this conversation um, will shed some good light on what I think is a really important issue, especially in this moment of Black Lives Matter and Me Too and, 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 and an encroaching election where the question of like, who gets to say what to who when is really important. So without any more preamble, this is me and Mark Oppenheimer chopping it up. I'll see you on the other side. So, so she's doing free speech stuff as a ninth grader. Yes, she's, um, uh, I mean, you know, there's not a lot to do in the summer now that we've all been COVID smacked. So, um, but she's a really, uh, she's a very intellectually curious kid. And so she found this program online that's, um, a, a free speech seminar run by the Penn America foundation, um, the writers group, um, where they, I think they hear different points of view of, you know, how much speech is, is, is too much, you know, uh, yeah. should, I mean, she, she gets the fundamentalist point of view from her dad who just believes the more free speech and the more freedom and liberty to say what we want, the better. So maybe it's being tempered by other points of view. I'm not sure it's her, you know, it, it's her thing, not mine. Wow. That's so interesting. So, so, she, so did she also want to sign the letter? <laughs> you know, I didn't tell her about it. Um, I didn't tell anyone. I, mean, I signed it, and then it ran a few days later, and um, and uh, then 
I told my wife about it, who was seeing some stuff about it. And she follows some authors on Twitter. And then eventually I think I told Rebecca about it. And then she went and read up on it and, you know, read, read the critiques and read the letter. And yeah, she kind of brought herself up to speed, but you know, kids don't want to hear about their parents' work too much. I'm, I'm always, I'm always surprised when I talk to my political friends who talk about how intentional they are with educating their kids in politics and kind of, you know, making sure to raise right thinking children. And I think that, first of all, I would have been so annoyed if my parents had done that, that that wasn't the relationship I wanted with them. And the second thing is, I think that kids learn so much more by just watching you and, and seeing you model stuff than by hearing lectures. So I don't tend to lecture my kids about politics or religion or anything. No, and you kind of don't need to because, I mean, I, you know, I remember being in New York with you and like going to the, I forget who, whose apartment it was. It was our producer. It was Josh. Yeah. Right. It was Josh's apartment. There are all these kids running around and your kids, you know, and I'm just like, yeah, yeah they're just in the mix. They're in the mix. They're in the yeah. mix. And, and, and they will be who, I mean, yes, I'm around my kids a lot. So if, if they don't learn something by just seeing me model it, then, then I'm in trouble. You know, that's, that's, I think, isn't that how child rearing used to be as they started working next to you on the farm when they were four? I I have this notion that that's, it used to be much more that they just kind of were alongside you and picked up what it, what they needed to know. Maybe that's just a fantasy. No, and and my dad, the sociologist said that that was the great change in the American family was when we moved off farms and there was no longer that, um, that sort of natural teaching. But the other, the other weird thing is, is as technology speeded up, it used to be that what your father or mother knew how to do was relevant to you. Cause like, that's what you were going to do. Right. And you, right. And you, you know, and, and, and now it changes so fast that y- y- you, you can't learn from your parents because the technology that they were using or the kind of the society they were living in is, a, you know, we've like, I feel like in, I'm, I'm irrelevant to my kids. Much of my experience is irrelevant to my kids because the world is so different and, and everything works differently. I totally see that. I mean, there definitely are things where they're way ahead of me and I'm never going to catch up. And certainly there are fields that um, if they enter those fields, what they'll figure out very quickly is how little their parents know and how, how obsolete we are. But I mean, but also I'm a writer and my wife's a lawyer and those haven't changed as much. And I think that, um, you know, the kind of things that my kids and I talk about, you know, involve like ethics, journalistic ethics, clear prose, uh, being nice to people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it's, it's a pretty stable uh, set of principles. Wait, I journalistic think. ethics, clear prose, and being nice to people, three things that are no longer relevant in journalism. R- right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what are you talking about? Those so, things are gone. Gone. I mean, I still get the print edition of the newspaper. So, I, you know, I think my kids are finally figuring out that I'm a little intentionally old-fashioned and they will make of that what we will, what they will. So... I've got 79,000 personal things that I want to ask you and I will. Okay. But what, what, what made me think to call you right now is that letter. Mm-hmm. And, and cause you know, I, I saw it kind of, it, it, when did it drop? When did it actually drop? I don't remember the date. I remember that it was after the 4th of July long weekend. Yeah. So July 7th, 8th, you know, it's coming up on three weeks now, I think. And and how long was it from the moment where somebody approached you and said, "Hey, this is this thing we're doing," to like like was 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 it a big like long back and forth process, or did somebody just put it in front of you and say, "What do you think?" I was not in the initial kind of inner circle of writers. I didn't help draft it. By the time I saw it, um, I, the text that I signed on to was the text that got posted at Harper's website. So, and then, and then maybe it was, and maybe that was two weeks before it actually posted, maybe last, maybe 10 days. I don't know. I was pretty late in the game, you know, and, and, uh, and, you know, I didn't know or ask who else had signed on at that point because it shouldn't matter, right? If something's true and you feel it, you shouldn't be ashamed or scared or worried about who your bedfellows are. And, um, I was really, really disturbed by some of the people who thought that, well, who said things like, well, the text of it is good, but, you know, how can you be on a letter with this person or that person? And I thought, well, I will, I will ally with anyone around 
an important principle. You know, there, you know, if, if, if I can find people, I mean, this is what, this is what you do, right? If, if, if you're trying to end the death penalty and some of the people who will join with you are Roman Catholics and you disagree with on several other things, you still find a way to ally around any of the death penalty. If, you know, think of all the evangelical Christians who might disagree with on a lot, who, who got the memo about, you know, ending mass incarceration and you work with them on that. And that's, that's how it has to be in a democracy. So I didn't say, well, who else is on it and vet. In fact, the more diverse a group of people are on it, the, the better, right? Um, well, that was, that course, was my thought. I've been shocked by that. Like, I've been shocked by that part of the conversation because, right. I mean, the reason this, this came in front of me was when, when all the George Floyd stuff started happening, right. I, my, my initial thought was I hesitated. I didn't want to say anything too fast because the older I get, the more I want to stop and think about things before I say mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started to get people who were angry at me for hesitating. Right. Like, yeah. it, sh- it shouldn't take you any time to think right. about what you think about this. Right. And, and, how, and how, that, dare you, how dare you reflect on it for a day or a week or even longer before figuring out. It speaks to your character. Yeah. What, right, right. No hesitation, no reflection, no deep thought. Um, just blurt something out. Um, faster is better. And, and so that, you know, so then when I finally did say something, um, I made a podcast mm-hmm. uh, and, and I thought about it. I wrote notes and, and I got a lot of blowback on that. Um, but then I, I ended up in all these conversations with people because the kind of people that correspond with me are more conversational. Mm-hmm. And I sort of figured out what was wrong with what I said. Mm-hmm. It was super, it was a super helpful process for me. Mm-hmm. A- and, uh, but I became very aware that that was not the experience that other people were having. Um, and, and so I, I sort of quickly realized that my expertise in race relations, which I actually did have 20 which years have, ago. Which you, yeah. yeah. I, I was engaged in cross-cultural stuff. Right. Like you I were lived, doing the work. I've only lived in black neighborhoods for most of my life. Right. Um, you know, and so I thought I, you, you, so what happens is, is you hone your shtick like in your twenties and thirties, and then mm-hmm. you give seminars on it in your forties. Yeah. Um, and what I realized is, is that the stuff I, my seminar, which I like, I thought was really hip and great. And it really probably was really hip and great in the nineties. Um, it's a, it's a little out of date right now and and things have changed a little bit. So I'm, I'm getting educated. And, but in this process of getting educated and learning some things, I'm just realizing like, man, you shouldn't say any, like it's dangerous to say anything. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I mean, look, there have been a few huge shifts that are, in many ways, content neutral. They're not left-wing shifts or right-wing shifts. They're just sociological shifts about how America does business. You know, in the media, you used to get maybe a daily newspaper and then maybe a weekly magazine or two, a Time or Newsweek, and then maybe a monthly magazine. You know, we got I got Rolling Stone, which is bi-weekly when I was in college. My parents, I think, got Vanity Fair for the Hollywood stuff. And that was it. Your media diet of periodicals was maybe five things, one of which was daily. And if you were upset at anything in any of them, you could write a letter to the editor, which I loved doing as a, as a nerdy kid. And if they liked it, it would run in the daily paper three days later. And if it was a weekly or a monthly, maybe several weeks or a month or two later, and then the, the author could write a reply and then it kind of tailed off. And that was it. That was what, that was what counted for dialogue. And it was very civilized and editors came in at every process and made sure people were being polite and didn't swear and were listening to each other. And there was a lot that was good about it. And I miss that terribly for obvious reasons. I also understand that one of the things that's happened with social media is now everyone who wants to weigh in on something can. That has been democratizing in a lot of ways. It's also been really scary for writers. Like, and what I can compare it to, I know that this is a place where a lot of people will say, oh, poor writers, you, know, you have so much power and so much privilege. And in some ways we do. We have a very, very... Uh, you know, we have a pulpit, we have a voice that can get out and we have institutions and corporations helping us get that voice out. I would say in some ways, like income or health insurance, we have uh, very little power. <laughs> I mean, really less than 
than a lot of people. But let's bracket that and say, um, for whatever privilege we have, think of what it would do to surgery if every surgery was televised to the world. You know, would you want your cardiologist or heck, your dentist to be live streaming every procedure that he or she or they did every time? Now, on the one hand, you could say it would be so democratizing. Think of all the great feedback. Think of all the education. Think of how it would keep him or her honest, right? All the things they say about journalists. On the other hand, it would completely destroy the practice, right? Like when everything you do is uh, scrutinized by thousands of people or millions in real time, it makes it very hard to do what you do. And that would be true of a carpenter. I I get that with the carpenters and the dentists, but when you're a writer – I thought the whole point was to be scrutinized. Like you, you publish something so that it gets scrutinized. Yep. Don't you want everybody to weigh in on that? You don't want everybody to. I mean, here's the problem, right? Is that you don't know what to do with thousands and thousands of comments. You just don't. You might know what, in the old days, I knew what to do with my editors and letter writers and some friends. Uh, I might've even known what to do with a community of several hundred people who I knew read me and occasionally reached out. I don't know what to do, and I think most writers don't, when there are thousands of commenters, because there was no way to scientifically say, well, what's the gist of them? What's, how do I extract the wisdom from thousands of people? What you end up doing is reacting to the people who, scared, who are either praising you the most, because you're self-interested and we all love praise. Uh, you react to the people who get under your skin with cruelty, or in my case, sometimes with anti-Semitic uh, taunts, tweets, jibes, you know. For other writers, it would be racist or misogynist or homophobic or transphobic, you know, or, or Christian phobic or Islamophobic tweets, jibes, whatever. And then um, you also react to the people who threaten your livelihood. There are people who send cruel things to your editors, who accuse you of being incompetent, who invent ethical lapses. I mean, there are people who go for your job, which so you spend a lot of your time writing thinking, you know, how can I be just bland enough to avoid people coming for my livelihood? And I realize that doesn't sound, you know, to people who aren't writers, they think poor writers. But especially if you're a freelance writer like me, um, if people start um, abusing you in ways that Google keeps track of, it can really hurt your ability to get assignments. Um, Is this like, I don't want to sound ignorant, but like, is this what people mean when they talk about cancel culture? vis-a-vis writers? Yeah. You know, Ross Douthat of the Times wrote a good piece. It was it was something like 10 or 11 theses on cancel culture. It was just a bullet-pointed opinion piece where he's like, here are 10 things we can say about it. And one of them, he defined cancel culture. And one of the things he did, which is a very progressive left-wing thing to do, even though he's a conservative, is he, he, he tied it to the fact that they're coming for your employment, right? So it's not about just abuse. Like we can all turn off Twitter and ignore the abuse. It's, um, it's also, do they make you less likely to be able to secure a livelihood and support your family? I mean, people don't understand the economics of writing, and I'm happy to talk about things other than writing. We segued into this, and I don't think writers are an extremely oppressed class by and large. But when I started writing, just to give you a sense, the first piece I ever did for Slate.com, the online magazine, in 1997, I was paid $1,000. Now, that's good money, although... To, have a, to make a living at it, you would need 25 or 50 of those pieces a year. And most writers are lucky if they manage to place three or four, right? So, but $1,000 for a week's work, let's say. That was nice, especially by $1997. Today, that same piece, I'd get paid one or $200. I mean, I literally have to write hundreds of them to make any sort of living. And that's no, with no health insurance. I mean, the money's gotten so bad. The assignments have gotten so few. So many publications have closed up shop. So... If a Twitter mob comes and says, by the way, you're also a reactionary, bigoted, uh, phobic, um, liar. I mean, I've never been accused of most of these things and I'm not, you know, I'm scrupulous about sourcing. I haven't been accused of plagiarism, all these things. But if someone accuses you of those things, whether it's true or not, and editors Google you when you pitch a piece, even if they don't know you, they might think, eh, I'm going to stay away from this character. You know, there seems to it's be It's not worth trail. the trouble. It's just not worth it's the not trouble. Worth the trouble. It's not worth the trouble. I mean, it's exactly like, you know, if someone, if you're on Yelp, if you're a, if you're a carpenter or make a contractor, mechanic, and four or five people decide to destroy you online, it can have tremendous consequences for your ability to support yourself, your family, pay your bills. And that's the culture 
almost every professional lives in now. I imagine that preachers live in that culture. I imagine that tradespeople do, craftspeople, artists, you know. And so, and, and so in a sense, in a sense, it, it's just a lot easier now for for a small group of people to silence somebody, to just say, yes. We, we just don't want to hear that voice anymore, so we'll make it impossible for that person to get work. Right. I mean, keep in mind, it only takes, you know, that hasn't, I will be, let me say, the, the, the response is, that who has that happened to? Show me who that's happened to. And part of the answer is it's only happened to a few people. And some of those people still have a job, but the question is, okay, if they leave that job, could they get the next one? In other words, the question isn't always, did they get someone like Katie Watson, not Katie Watson, excuse me, Katie Herzog, who works with a stranger out in Seattle and ran afoul of, of a lot of social media um, for something she wrote. Right. And she I, was, I, I looked her up. She, cause she was in, in this whole mix. I, I, I she's, she wasn't like a big time famous writer. She was a local no, Seattle no, writer. No, and she's she, a local and, Seattle writer. And she wasn't writing like a, a consistent, like she wrote around about all sorts of local issues. But you dropped this one piece about trans people, right? That's right. And I don't remember the piece terribly well. I think it has something to do with people who had transitioned and then transitioned back. That's exactly what it was. And I don't think she, she wasn't advocating for that. My recollection is it was a very even-handed piece. Um, uh, she wasn't judging anyone. She was just saying, this is a phenomenon that has existed with some people. And if you read her own recounting of how she got then destroyed, lost friends, lost uh, community, I think she herself is, is queer, is a lesbian, um, and was embedded in the left-wing community there, and um, how hard that was for her. Um, now, a lot, I think she still works at The Stranger, so you could say, okay, she still has a job. Um, could she ever be made editor there could, if she left The Stranger, if she wanted to move to a different part of the country for personal reasons? Um, could she get a job at you know, uh, New York magazine, could she get a job at creative loafing in Atlanta? Could, you know, pick, pick your magazine, right? Or is this the last job in journalism she'll get hired for because she was made so toxic, even though, you know, she may be a very scrupulous journalist. So, but here's the, and then there's this, the third order thing, which is what happens if you're a 23 year old just coming up, you don't have a career yet, you're getting started and you see this happen. And I can only tell you that I know from younger journalists, I mean, I'm 45, almost 46. When I talk to people coming out of college now, they very much get, they're afraid to even pitch certain stories. They're afraid that if they go to editors with certain ideas that seem um, toxic or scary to certain people, that they might be, get tagged as a certain kind of writer and just bouncing that idea around the editorial room is dangerous. Which which is, you know, it's interesting because like my son, um, a few years ago when we were all living in LA, um, my son used to say that, you know, I was on, on the campus at USC and you right. know, obviously a college campus is a place where, you know, feminist theory, you know, queer theory, like it's all, everything's flying around. And he kept saying to me, you know, he would talk about the way that these that the college kids often would sort of drown out or deplatform people who were saying things they didn't want to hear, mm -hmm. and and I said, well, you know, that's the nature of college students. You know, they're very, you know. I said, but you know, they get out in the world, they get real jobs. Like they they said it. On, and he, I still remember him sort of saying, like, you're crazy. Like this thing that's happening on college campuses, where where people want safe spaces and where people insist that certain people should not be allowed to speak. Um, he said, it, it, you, you watch, man, it's going to just take over everywhere. It's going to be in corporations. It's going to be in media. It's going to be everywhere. And I, I sort of, in my wise way, sort of, you know, son, I've, I've, I've seen campus moves right. before that, that it's not going to work like that. And he just laughs at me now. He says, do yeah. you see it's everywhere. Well, one of the things that's happened, right, and again, I'll talk about the field that I, and by the way, I should back up and say at various points in time, there have been other things that can make you toxic, right? So they used to talk about how hard it would be to be an evangelical Christian at the New York Times. I think it would still be very hard to do that. Um, they will, you know, certainly, um, you know, there were times and places where it was really hard to be an open atheist, anything in most of the country. So I don't want to, you know, I want to talk about this as a general, you like to me, 
the, what, the fun. The, but wait, can yeah, I ask ahead. you a question? Like, I think that's true. And, the, and, and to this day, it would be very hard for you to be a neo-Nazi and to be a columnist at the New York Times. True. Yep. And you go like, isn't that a good thing? Like, aren't there yep. some things that are morally out of bounds? I think, there, I think it's absolutely good that certain things are morally out of bounds. Um, the question is, is our disposition on encountering a new idea to hope that, it's, that there's something of value somewhere in it or in the person saying it, that like this new person with this new idea could intrigue me in some ways and teach me, or is our disposition, is our first reflex before we even think about it, like our pre-verbal, you know, the reflex that like hits us before we kind of have that split second of thought process, right? Is our first instinct to think, oh, I disagree with it, therefore it makes me unsafe, it's toxic, it violates someone's human rights, let's, let's shunt it, let's make sure it never gets heard. I would like to, so let me give you an example, like, I was saying for years, you know what would be cool is if the New York Times had a socialist columnist. Now they may. I don't know if some of the writers, you know, of their more left-wing writers on the op-ed page identify that way. But I also said, like, wouldn't it be cool to have an anarchist? Wouldn't it also be cool to have a monarchist? Like, I have known really thoughtful people who have said, look, a kind of soft constitutional monarchy, like the one that a lot of European countries have have, provides a certain kind of stability and sense of, of patriotism in a non-toxic way that the United States would actually benefit from. Um, now, I don't agree, but just like, it would be interesting to have someone making points like that from outside, from the anarchist point of view, the monarchist point of view, the sort of Green Party point of view. So, and all of those at various times have been just ruled out of bounds. So to me, I want more things in the mix, not everything, just more, just, I want the disposition to be more. And, and, and that's, that's the crux is there definitely a lot of people who want the, the mix to be less, not more. And, and that's what this letter to your mind was about, was about saying, Hey, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to further curtail free speech in this country. Yes. And, so, and, and, you know, some people criticized it for being too general uh, although several specifics were mentioned, but I think you do want it to be general because it's about an attitude. It's about an attitude of when I meet someone who disagrees with me or read a piece that disagrees with me that, that I disagree with, does it improve my day? Cause it gave me something interesting to think about or a new experience or does it worsen my day? Because I'm furious. Um, cause I'm, cause I'm angry. Cause I'm furious. And you know, I mean, there was one signer of the letter who was accused by a, someone who works, uh, at his place of employment, perhaps an underling, I don't know if he was a direct supervisor of this person, accused of making her feel unsafe by having signed the letter. Oh, was that the Vox guy? Yeah, that was Matthew Iglesias. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I read about that. You know, and by the way, the employee who accused him of that said in the public letter that she posted, by the way, he's always been perfectly decent and kind to me, but I feel unsafe that he signed the letter. So it was like, and I think the logic was, he signed this letter that had on it two or three people whom I feel are transphobic, this woman was saying, including J.K. Rowling of, the, the Harry, of Harry Potter fame, right? By associating with them, by being in a room with them, so to speak, I now feel unsafe when he comes into a room with me, even though he's always been perfectly decent to me. And I will just tell you, as someone who's, who, has had, who had family who suffered under McCarthyism, that is McCarthyism, saying, I, I am entitled to... Uh, attack you or report you to the boss, which is what happened, um, or just disdain you because of parties you've been at or people you've socialized with because of this guilt by association. That's really scary, right? Because then every time we go to a party, we wonder, oh my God, who will be there? Will it be someone who voted for Trump? Uh, well, I think that's toxic. Will it be someone who supports you know, President Duda in Poland, where he's from, who may be a neo-fascist? Like, we start asking ourselves, like, what's the voting record of the people whom I might just be grabbing coffee with? And like, you can't live like that. You can't, you can live like it yourself. And that's hard enough. But then when you're testing all your acquaintances against that, I, and it's yeah. also very junior high, it's cruel. It's saying like, oh my God, you're lame. You, you were at that party with so-and-so. You can't come to my party. Wait, and, and I don't know where it stops. I mean, it's so interesting for me, sports right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like there's a coercive element in which all these all these sports organizations are realizing like we better be down with the cause. 
you know, we better put those right. statement, statements on our jerseys. And, you know, I mean, for at first they were like, nobody can kneel. Now they're like, everyone must kneel. Um, right. And what's interesting for me is one of the things I liked about sports was, is I could go to a game with a transphobic racist who's from my hometown. And like, if he's for the Eagles and I'm for the Eagles, we both cheer when they score a touchdown. And I always thought that was, there was something good about that. Like being in the room with somebody around one thing that you had in common. Among other things, among other things, you know, just, um, it's the only hope you have of changing that person. I mean, it's first of all, good in a democracy that we have some spheres where we can talk about stuff without retreating into militia compounds, right? It's actually safer if we know each other. It's always safer to be able to put a name to a face. So if you are worried about brutality, cruelty- And, and a face to an idea. That's right. Yeah. Then you want people to interact. Like PTA meetings, PTA meetings, like there are people to the right of me, to the left of me, but the fact that we have in common some interest in our kids' education is very good for our city. And let me tell you that when, after George Floyd's death, after his murder, um, when cities were going through a lot of turmoil, I think one of the things that helped New Haven process it better than some cities is we're fairly small, large public school population, a lot of people know each other, geographically compact, like knowing people helps. But the other thing is, let's say someone really is a transphobic or even out and out, you know, everything, racist, transphobic, a Nazi, right? The only prayer of you having any impact, Bart Campolo, on that person is if you have some space in which you can do stuff. So one of those... Wait, space in which I can do stuff? Yeah, which you can hang with them, like the Eagles. Oh, game. okay. Yeah. Space in which right. we can we can actually... At a, yeah, exactly. There has to be contact. Right. You know, sports is one of the places that... I'm not a huge sports fan, but, you know... I recognize that's one of the places where that happens. Um, and I mean, go read Eli Zaslow's book, Rising Out of Hatred, about the uh, neo-Nazi, serious neo-Nazi, like nationally known neo-Nazi, who was an undergrad at New College in Florida. Do you know that book, Bart? I don't. Oh, my God. This is this is like literally the best book ever in the past few years. Uh, Eli, Eli Zaslow, who writes for The Washington Post, he wrote the story of this. Neo- you probably heard about the story at some point. It was this neo-Nazi. He'd been raised by a serious, like, clan guy. They had a web radio station that reached thousands. He went to college at New College in Florida, ended up, like, getting invited to a Shabbat dinner by these Jewish kids. Oh, I did and hear now, about this kid. Yeah. Now he's a grad student at the University of Chicago. He works against racism, against anti-Semitism, against homophobia. Like, totally changed because Contact. people knew who he was. People yeah. knew who he was. And the Jews kept saying, keep coming to Shabbat dinner with us. So, you know, like if, if shunning people and being cruel to them actually changed hearts and minds, <laughs> I might be, I might say, sign me up, but actually it doesn't, it actually doesn't work well, as well yeah. as being good to people. No. And this, I mean, you know, the reason why I wanted to talk about this with you is because it's part of a larger conversation that I feel like I'm always having with the people in my community, you know, many of whom are deconverted Christians and they're just so angry and and they they're sort of they 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 often especially in the early days adopt a real adversarial relationship with organized religion. Mm-hmm. And and I'm just like you. I thought like, hey, if I thought that would actually you know, if I thought that was a way of helping people get out of toxic belief systems, and not that all religion all religious thinking is toxic, but some of it really is. But I'm like, yep. even the most toxic forms of it, you don't. You don't change anything by attacking except to cause people to double down and get and get more entrenched in their in their belief system. And yeah, so that's right. It just it's 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 not just that it's mean and unseemly. It's it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I uh, am friendly with one undergrad at Yale who's who's always saying, "Look, I'm not in, I'm not calling people out. I'm calling people in." This is a new thing. Saying I'm calling not attacking them and pointing out the ways in which they're wrong and I'm inviting them to change. And I want to be like, yeah, but why don't you just invite them over for dinner and not talk about politics? And maybe if a friendship comes of it, they'll eventually figure out that you're happier because you're a more inclusive, tolerant person and that that's a functional way to be. Well, and you know, maybe the, don't. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, I mean, maybe don't start with trying to change people. 
Well, I mean, I think that one of the things that I'm, you know, it's funny, like one of the other people that signed the letter was John Haidt, Jonathan Haidt, mm -hmm. who I, you know, sort of worship at the feet of on many mm -hmm. occasions. Um, but, it, you know, one of the, the most important things that he said about people disagreeing over religion and politics is, is that the way we're discussing things now, we see the person who disagrees with us as hating the country or, mm -hmm. or being, uh, being against loving kindness or, you know, we see them as evil rather than as, um, having a different vision or having yep. a different understanding. And I think that that getting together over dinner or that going to the Eagles game together, it does help in the sense of when you know somebody, you think to yourself, they, they, they're wrong but they're not evil. Mm -hmm. And so then you have to get into like, I thought they adopted those ideas, you know, because like the e ideas are evil and they're evil. So they just like them because they're like evil. But now I have to ask myself if that's a good person who's adopting that idea, why, why is that appealing to them? What part of their goodness does that idea appeal to? And it just, it forces me to grapple with their that other worldview in a very different way. I think it also allows room for humility. I mean, I'm not by nature a humble person. Humility and humbleness come come difficultly to me. So I'm not, I should take the plank out of my own eye first to quote you Christians, you ex you Christian, you have, you have Christian heritage. But, but I am aware, I do try to be aware there's stuff I believe First of all, there's stuff I believed when I was 10 or 20 or 30 that I'm ashamed of now. Like we're all on a journey to use some new age talk that I hate. But also there's stuff we all believe that a thousand years from now, they're going to look back on us for and think, well, you know, how could they Right, the way that Aristotle believed in slavery? And, you know, as Agnes Coward wrote in the Times, like, of course, we still have to like learn Aristotle, right? Because you have to understand the context he was in, in that in that time. We, no, that's not 1700 or 1800 or 1900, but at Aristotle's time, right? What will people think of the way we treat animals 500 years from now? I mean, factory farming is something that civilized people do, torturing animals and, and the workers, the often undocumented workers who work in factory farms as part of our economy that's supported with government dollars, you know, with lots of farm bills, you know. Uh, oh yeah, incarcerating people for mental illness. Incarcerating people for mental illness, executing mentally ill people, um, you know, and there could be things we don't know about that, that, you know, there could be, um, advances in, you know, we could discover that plants have feelings, <laughs> you know, that they suffer when we cut them down, that even a vegetarian diet's not good. We don't know. We don't know where our ethical impulses will take us. So to sit next to someone and say, well, I'm 20 years more advanced than you. You haven't gotten the memo yet that I got in 2006 or 2016, Therefore, you're evil. That takes a lot of pride and arrogance, right? Like I'm fixed, and I, now I'm going to sit in judgment with you. Like I think much better to just try to get to know people and hope that they come to work with us on policies that we think will alleviate human suffering. So, so I, I'm. I mean, and that's again, like the reason I wanted to engage you on this one is because I feel like that's all I have to offer right now. Like my mm -hmm. racial understanding, I, I feel like is good, but I, but like, it's, it's probably dated. Um, some of the stuff that made, you know, some of the stuff that, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to educate people about white privilege 20 mm -hmm. years ago and, and, mm -hmm. and male privilege. Um, mm -hmm. as the debate is going on now, I I'm, I'm, I'm worried that it might be penduluming so much that I'm starting to wonder whether continuing to talk in terms of, um, reversing racism or giving special privileges or, or reparations. Like I'm worried that if we keep using categories of race to, to make public policy, that we're entrenching the idea of racial division. Of race. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I'm sort of like, I, I know that's easy for me to say on some level, but I really am worried that you know, like one of the other guys that wrote that, that signed that letter, John McWhorter, who's somebody who I have, you know, for 20 years sort of like looked down my nose at. Another Philadelphian. I know. I know. He's, he's, he's starting to make some sense to me. 
And, and, and I've never been thrilled with that black conservatism thing because it always felt like sort of a little bit self-defeating or self-hating or something. But anymore, he's just like, look, if you keep doing this set-asides for black people and different standards for black people and changing the rules for black people in order to, to try to overcome an obvious and horrible traumatic wrong, it's like you're just going to perpetuate this deal. And he said, you know, he said all these white, you know, and one of the things I'm realizing is like right now I'm, I'm worried about the cancel culture, but I'm also worried about like the enforced agreement, like the coerced agreement that I'm seeing, because I'm worried that all these people are sort of going, I'm down with the cause and black lives matter. And we, and and we need to, we need reparations and stuff like this. And I I think that all these white people are on board with this movement. And all these men are on board with the women's movement until somebody comes for their job, until somebody comes for their privilege. And then I think there's going to be a backlash like you won't believe. And oh, without like, question. Oh, you're going to go like, oh, we're going to go tribal here? Oh, so it's black people versus white people? Well, you know, it turns out that we actually have a lot more access to the money and the weapons. So like if that's the way we're going to go, let's let's go. And, and Look, I just don't want to go the there. Day, at, right. No, it would be very destructive, very destructive. At the end of the day, nobody is excited to pay higher taxes. I mean, I'd like to think that if that's what was required to fund meaningful reparations or real improvement in public services, not just schools, people talk about schools, how about parks? How about why doesn't New Haven have parks for our white, black and brown people like all the suburbs around us do, you know? So the week, like, why, why have our tennis courts not been resurfaced in 10 years? Why don't we have a public swimming pool? Why don't we, you know, why don't the basketball hoops get replaced more? Like, so much in terms of just joy that you don't get when you don't have the tax dollars. And Americans don't like paying them. And, and, and by the way, people of color don't like paying them either. <laughs> like, it's, you know, if this project is going to require Americans of, you know, most black people are not poor. Most white people are not poor. Um, you know, most people of every racial group are at least above the poverty line and are paying federal taxes and, you know, income taxes. So, um, when, and I'm, yeah, right. So, so but when it's, when the, the ask is everyone's taxes go up 5%. Yeah. Then we'll say, oh no, I was really into that statement of principle that the bakery released, but, but now you want me to pay higher taxes? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what I find is that that's, that's the place where I feel like I'm out of step. And I, like, if I was a writer, I'd be afraid to publish. Um, because more and more, I'm beginning to think that I want to be like, even if I want to lift up and create more inclusivity for black and brown people and for women and for, for trans and lesbian and gay people and all, all, all the, all the kind of oppressed people's groups that are sort of broadly categorized here. I kind I, like, at least at a public policy level, I would rather just talk about creating opportunity um, in a in an economic way like i just i just want to i just want to create equity in, in educational opportunity and i want to create equity in parks and i want to create equity just like every citizen should have access to this that healthcare like i don't want to i don't want to address healthcare as a black and white issue as much as i just want to address as, as, as sort of like a, a people that have it and people that don't like, well, and I, I feel like that will subsume, like that will subsume the black underclass that we're all worried about in this moment. But, but I feel like that, I feel like it would be better if we did it on a, on a kind of an economic level, if we address poverty or if we address, well, I think it's, I exclusion. think it's both and, right. I think it's both and. So I think that one thing that COVID has shown us is like, if you weren't aware of it before, there are actually racialized disparities that are not only related uh, to class. Um, some of them are related to underlying conditions having to do with obesity or diabetes or asthma. Asthma can, of course, be correlated to you know environmental racism. Where do they put the coal plants? Where do they frack? Uh, that in that case would be largely around poor white people. Um, you know where do they put factories when they were in inner cities? Where is the lead paint too high? Often around poor black people, right? So you can do this analysis and you have to, but at the same time the next large scale public works project, infrastructure project, or social justice project, the next version of Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps is going to be built, I think, I predict, out of a class-based coalition and the the language of it will not be racialized because this is also just, you know, talking brass tacks, a country that is um, 
76% white still. And, you know, some say, well, if you look at non-Hispanic whites, it's maybe 60%. And then you get up to 76 when you include a lot of white people with Latin heritage. But still, you know, when you're talking 11, 12, 13% African-American, I mean, we are not at liberty to bust out into different silos and racialize everything. We, we have to figure out how do we get through Congress um, bills that, you know, ideally the Alabama senators will vote for too. So part of it is just like a lot of the left, I think, has forgotten how do you build these coalitions? Um, well, yeah, I mean, and like the letter that you wrote, it, it was so int- or that you signed. Yeah. The, the interesting thing about that to me is, is that it feels like the people that are being deplatformed or that are being canceled or that are being so often it's people that are just a little less left than I am. Yeah. Oh, it's totally the left cannibalizing its own. It's totally, it, it's not, I mean, interestingly, it's a lot more cushy right now, psychologically to just be a conservative, just write for national review. The left has given you up for lost and the right is actually a little more open to internal dissent right now. Um, why do you yeah, think that is? Why, uh, why do you think that, um, that, that, that the left is so, is so that, that there's so much of a demand for kind of conformity and for a, a, a certain kind of orthodoxy? Well, like part, of it is orthodoxy. Where we, part of it is where the left has power. The left has cultural power right now. The universities, Hollywood, that's just true. I mean, poll any Hollywood writer's room, it's going to be 75 to 95 percent, at least liberal voting, democratic voting. University faculties, I mean, I think Yale's faculty, you know, I teach at Yale as an adjunct, but, you know, 95 to 99% Democrat, right? So there's cultural power, newsrooms, media, um, but there's not economic power. So part of it is the left flexing its muscle where it can, which is policing other people in its writer's rooms, in its Hollywood, you know, production meetings, in its media newsrooms on the university. That's where it can police power because it can't get the minimum wage up where it wants to. Can't get that through the Senate. The other thing is, um, you know, this narcissism of small differences, right? Like we tend to, you know, Freud talked about, we tend to be most angered by the people who are like just one click away from us. I think a lot of marriages fall apart because they were totally in sync when they got married. And then one person clicks one degree away and just everything blows up, right? And then the third thing is that there is this puritanical streak on the left. Like in some ways, the, the left is more than the right, the heirs of the puritanism. We, I mean, it's complicated because if you think of Puritan New England as just constantly in everyone's business, policing their sexuality, policing what they say, policing what they think, certain strands of that have emerged on the right in terms of obviously policing people's sexuality. Um, but certain strands of it have emerged on the left. Policing people's terms- attitudes about sexuality. People's attitudes, again, the right is guilty there too, but also um, just in terms of the purity stuff, the bodily purity stuff, like why is the anti-vaxxer movement so upset? Why is it bigger on the left? Why is the the obsession with things being natural and uncontaminated that leads a lot of liberals to like bogus homeopathic remedies? Um, Or, you know, here's a funny one. Like you discover when you become a dad that all the other parents think that toys should be made out of wood, not plastic. Like why? Why is wood so virtuous? Um, this kind of purity, natural, uncorrupted, um, some of it has a sort of plausible basis in, in health. But like, honestly, the plastic you'd buy for your kids today would last a thousand years. And so would the wood. It's, it's more than that. It's deeper than that. You know, why does the left like brown sugar and brown flour? <laughs> you know, it's just and that purity. And then they and the left is really interested in having a party where nobody there is a Republican or having a magazine. You know, I talked to one guy on the left, a professor, and I said, like, don't you miss the days when the New Republic or Slate or Salon, all of the kind of center left, even just liberal magazines always had a few token conservatives, cranky liberals, people making sort of counterintuitive points. Like that's what Slate used to be, was liberals kind of pointing out how ridiculous other liberals were. And he said, you mean like the days when Newsweek always gave its back page to George Will as the token conservative? I was like, yeah, that was interesting. And he's like, yeah, we, that was a bad idea. You know, like it was wrong. It was, it was pretending that conservatives had something to offer and good riddance. He just had no romance with the idea of a diversity, a, heter- a sort of heterodox mix. He wanted purity. If he's going to subscribe to a magazine, doesn't want one thing in it that'll trouble him. And, and you know, you, you sort of wonder 
if folks, if they go, they think, and that would be good for the country as a whole. Like if I could live in a country with all liberals, wouldn't that be great? And I, I guess, I guess I think that the tension is supposed to be there. I mean, I just think even in terms of like a marriage or a family, there's right. somebody in the family who's like, we should try all these new things. We should go there. And there's somebody going like, look, 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 we want to do what we've always done. Like we need to stick to traditions and we need, and that tension, if, if we just went with the tradition person, we would never grow as a family. And all those traditions, by the way, were created by people that, you know, pushed the boundaries and came up with the, the new tradition. But if we only went forward, we, we would go in a lot of dangerous places and we would yeah. make a lot of stupid – like I think there's something to the tension. And I, I guess what, I, what I'm worried about is it feels like people want to resolve that tension once and for all. Rather well, than, they've turned everything into a safety issue. Like the rhetoric of the left right now, everything is about safety or human rights. So I'll give you an example. I was saying to someone like, look, when I was in college, there definitely was, you know, whether it was 20%, 10%, 30%, there was like a decent number of people who were pro-life. And I was pro-choice and most of my friends were, but you argued with those people. You, you know, if a speaker came talking about that stuff, they asked questions, people listened respectfully. Like there was a pro-life group on campus. And this person I was talking to, this undergrad said, but those people want to enslave me. Like, why would you let slavers onto campus? And I thought, well, yeah, if you see every political disagreement as a human rights issue on the level of slavery, then sure, you want to completely purify your world. Like if, if a pro-life person is the same to you as a Nazi, though I think, again, where's a Nazi going to reform except by meeting good liberals on a college campus? But, I un but, but like, Mark, I understand why a woman would go like, that person wants to control my body. Like, I, I do understand why they're offended. I do understand why they're offended. I do. And afraid do, even. But, and afraid even. Like, what if this is in Alabama? And they're like, that person wants to shut down the last abortion clinic. You know, like, they, they want to actually make it so that I can't have an abortion. But A, this wasn't in Alabama. And B, these were undergrads trying to figure out what they thought they were in process. Okay. And C, these were undergrads who had decided to attend a university where they'd be in a small minority, perhaps because they themselves were open to debate. Um, and D, what we're practicing in colleges is sort of democratic process, I hope. I hope we're training people to be small D Democrats who figure out how to persuade people and organize and not destroy people socially, which is what would happen. The tactic today would be much more, let's practice ostracism and social destruction. Which I also think makes the practitioner a worse person. Like I'm not, I don't like myself more when I've been when I've ostracized someone. No, I, I, I don't. I, no, no, and I, I and and I feel like that that's what's the, the conversations that. I, but can I say something else, Bart? Yeah, like, yeah, please. I've been thinking about this. So two things. One, vis-a-vis -vis the letter. If you want to say like what united all of us, and I don't know, I haven't talked to but two or three of the people who were on it. It's not like there's a a secret lounge somewhere where we're smoking our oh no i thought cigar. you were really ha i thought you were like yeah. hanging out with malcolm gladwell and jk oh, rowling i was so excited time. okay all the time i'm i'm eating caviar off of first editions of jk rowling in malcolm gladwell's <laughs> apartment but i think it's actually an appreciation an affirm it's not a negative thing for me what the letter it says is it's an affirmative even though this isn't the text of it for me what unites the people insofar as i know some of them is like an affirmative joy in a robust debate with people who disagree with us. That like we like eccentric views, we like views that challenge ourselves, we feel we grow from them and we feel the country is healthier for them. So it's not that we wanna gently manage them or that we think the first amendment forces us to let them in. It's that we actually like heterodoxy, diversity, robust, robust debates, even like weirdness, even people trying out ideas that prove to be stupid. That, that that sphere of debate where everyone says what they think and gets politely, you know, mocked, ridiculed, or shouted down, but not in a mean-spirited way if they're wrong, is, a, is, a, is an American practice, certainly a British practice, right, uh, that we don't want to lose. And if people are too fearful, the world becomes more bland and self-defying. We're going to lose it. The second and thing I want to say wait, is- can I, can I say one thing yeah. to that point? And that is there's only one thing I like more than a robust debate, and that's losing it. Like, yeah, totally. I love- 
changing my mind or having my mind totally. changed. And totally. so I feel like that's the, the thing that if, if, I, if there's any value I want to lift up, I want to yep. lift up the value that says there is a incredible joy that comes over you that will, that will flood your body when you realize that you're wrong about something and that you have the yeah. privilege of growing. Because you learn something new. Yeah. And the other thing I'll say is that, um, you know, when you said like, well, wouldn't the pro-life student be angry at someone wanting to take away her rights? Um, absolutely. But I also want to say that like, we encounter these things all the time, whether we know it or not. We're always bumping against people who, whose views violate our very cores. Like as a Jew, and especially as a Jewish journalist who did so much work on evangelicals, I was constantly interacting with people who did literally believe I was going to hell. Right? Like, you know that I was and was interacting with such people, right? Like, you know, those people. I and, was those people. Yeah. And, and, and amazingly, I liked some of those people and some of them were friends of mine. And like some of those people end up seeing the light and becoming more like me. And some of them hoped that I'd become more like them. And it's actually not dangerous. Uh, democracy sets up a structure where it's actually not dangerous to bump up against people who think horrible things about you. It's not usually, like it's, it's not usually dangerous. It can it's not be dangerous. Usually dangerous. It yeah. can be dangerous. I agree with you. It can be very dangerous. But if democracy is working well, it actually processes it so that we can have settings where we do encounter people and interact with them in like, you might almost call it, it's not. And so today's, a lot of today's people would say, well, that's hypocrisy. Shouldn't we be No, like, it's not hypocrisy for me not to be enraged every time I encounter someone who thinks that my religious views condemn me to hell or woefully misguided or are idolatrous or like those are cruel things to think about someone. But, oh, well, you know, thank God I live in America where people generally don't kill each other over their beliefs. Generally don't. And that's and that's I, I, in some sense, that's where this letter starts is trying to protect a country you know, trying to protect that yeah. reality because, you know, first they come for your job. And if you allow it to be that way, um, it, it, it doesn't have to stop there. And, and we know that from watching, you know, and that's the weird thing is that, you know, the, the whole, it can't happen here. The, the, the assumption was that it would always come from the right, that it would always come from, yeah. the, from, from the populist fascist. Yeah. And, 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 but it, it can, I, I reckon it can come from the left too. If you look at the late 60s and early 70s, when there were a lot of bombs going off in America, they were they were often left wing bombs and the police brutality was right wing, you know, so but but we kid ourselves. We think it's one or the other. It's not yeah. either or it can be both. I'm tremendously fearful of Trump's authoritarian streak, but I have a different set of fears that have to do with the left's ideological totalitarian streak. All right. You've given me a lot to process. I'm going to process it. I'll get back to you about this about this part too. But right now, I'm very aware that you have children outside the bathroom. Okay, thank probably you. need to get in there. Um, <laughs> I, I, as, as ever, I love you. And, I love you too. And um, I totally am being sincere when I say, like, if you want to do a whole will, other hour I, or two, and I'm let's totally, do it. I'm totally sincere. I'm going to listen to this and and figure out where to go. Okay. Bye. All right. So that was me and Mark Oppenheimer. As you may have. You may be thinking right now, wait a second, wait a second. That conversation doesn't feel like it was over. It feels like you got cut off and that's exactly what happened. And no sooner had we finished the conversation than a half hour later, I got a text from Mark saying, I don't think we were finished. Do you want to do part two? And so we scheduled part two. It hasn't happened yet, but we're going to pick up and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do part two. So if you hear this episode... And you think to yourself, oh, I wish he'd have said this or asked that or what about this? Like, it's not too late. Send it in and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to uh, be the avatar of the entire community in, in, in the, in the follow-up conversation with Mark Oppenheimer, who I am so grateful is my friend and so grateful is a friend of this podcast. All right. You've listened long enough. It's time to go back to quarantine. I'll see you next time. Unhumanize me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group, just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, 
leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. You could be larger than life, bigger than the world, living out the hopes and dreams of every boy and every girl. You could fly higher than the sky, shine brighter than the stars. You can live for you ever wanted. Yeah. You could